So welcome to Slasher Film Theology. My name is Jeremy Marshall, and during our time together, I will offer critical engagement with the biblical stories of the Canaanite conquest through the lenses of three films from horror director Wes Craven. Now, if you're here, I am assuming that you are familiar with the slasher film genre and you know what you're getting yourself into. But just in case, I'm going to do something that I suspect may be a first for these lectures and offer a content warning. This session will include discussions of violence, including violence of a sexual nature, and it's not necessarily even just from the movies, but from the scriptures that we will be looking at. Um, and it will be including images and clips from films that portray murder and mayhem. So if for any reason you do not wish to continue, you may now go in peace with my blessing. So if you are here this morning, I'm not only going to assume that you have some familiarity with the slasher film genre, I'm also going to assume that you have questions, concerns, and confusion with the biblical accounts of Israel's conquest of Canaan. That you wonder how or even if you can apply these texts. You wonder how or even if these texts can be useful or even appropriate as Christian scripture. The Canaanite conquest narratives do present grave ethical and theological challenges for the Christian community. Because within these stories, we hear things like this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2. When the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, you must utterly destroy them, make no covenant with them, and show them no mercy. And then we see things like this. This is Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword, all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. City after city, it says something like this. Joshua went up with all Israel to so-and-so city and struck it with the edge of the sword, every person in it. He left no one remaining and utterly destroyed it with every person in it. Those are selections from Joshua chapter 10, verses 36 through 39. So there's just a lot of tension in these texts with so much of the rest of the biblical witness. Especially when you get to the New Testament and you get to the ministry of Jesus and he's saying, blessed are the merciful, and yet what we've just heard is, show them no mercy. And he's saying, love your enemies, 
But what it appears that we get out of the conquest narratives is slaughter your enemy, even the non-combatant enemies. And it just, there, there is that, that great degree of tension. And it seems like the tension that these texts do evoke has become especially acute after the 20th century. Because in the 20th century, you, you have a century marked by genocide and ethnic cleansing that by the end of the century had left um, nearly 20 million people dead. I mean, that is an undeniable fact um, about the, our previous century. And here in, in our Bibles, it seems like we have a lot of stories, right, that look like what we would call ethnic cleansing. Because the Israelites do not simply seem bent on exterminating or driving out the Canaanites, but in fact of erasing every bit of Canaanite identity from the memory of the land itself. And here's the thing. When you look back over some of the biggest black eyes on Christian history, guess what you will find as the justification that previous generations of Christians used for their own violent conquest? And that is, of course, the, the conquest narratives that you find in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. Um, this is what the popes used uh, as, as justification for the Crusades, right? The Puritans and, and, and before then the conquistadors when they're coming into the Americas, right? This is what they used as their justification for the enslavement, the exploitation, and the slaughter of indigenous peoples. Um, and and they, they would cast themselves, you know, we are the righteous Israelites they are the wicked Canaanites, and we are here to destroy them utterly. So, justly or unjustly, there is a legacy of violence and, in fact, a trail of dead following these texts that extends well past the days of Joshua. And this leaves many of us wondering... What can we do with these stories? How can the church appropriate these texts given the violence that they describe and seem to condone? Now, um, by the way, if, if you've come in and you haven't gotten a handout, can you raise your hand and my lovely wife, Megan, will try to supply you with one. Um, just keep your hand raised and she'll... She'll get as many of those to you as she can. Um, but I have provided you, and, and what we're getting is a list of suggested resources that I have found most helpful in framing and contextualizing the Canaanite conquest. And they, these present several different options for dealing with difficulties in these texts and engaging with these texts in a charitable manner. And while they are all incredibly helpful, they all still leave me with reservations and unanswered questions. So, um, 
I'm going to present one option today for critical engagement with the conquest narratives. I may not convince you. You may go home and get one or two of these resources that I'm sharing with you and, and look at them and you might decide that you like their answers better. And you know what? I am totally okay with that. And, and I'll tell you why. Because at least all of these like honestly wrestle with these texts. And all of them say, look, no matter what, there is no justification in using these texts as warrants for violence now. And I think as long as, we, as long as we start with that as a starting point, and that's where we end up, then we're in a healthy place as we try to, to wrestle with how we use them and apply them and look at them. Um, so all those, all those resources do that, and, and that's why I can heartily recommend them. Um, so my suggested model of interpretation for these texts is called critical traditioning. Critical traditioning. And this way of engaging with the texts um, was suggested by uh, Duke University professor Ellen F. Davis back in 2003 in um, an article, an essay of the same title. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the subtitle of her article, Seeking an Inner Biblical Hermeneutic. Okay, so what... What Ellen Davis wants to do, right, if it's an inner biblical hermeneutic, is that she wants to show us that the Bible has ways of helping us to negotiate the tensions within it. And that those means of help are found in the forms and the textures of the biblical canon itself. Davis understands the biblical canon as reflecting a living and evolving tradition. And that tradition's authority is derived from a long process of rumination and conversation, which both defines and refines the tradition. Here's how Davis describes this living tradition that the biblical canon reflects. She says, a tradition, in contrast to an ideology, right? Y'all following that? Y'all tracking that? A tradition, in contrast to an ideology, preserves in some form our mistakes and atrocities as well as our insights and moral victories. Moreover, with its habit of retention, a tradition preserves side by side the disagreements that are still unresolved in the present. The beauty of a living tradition is that it keeps us grounded in fidelity to the past, but it also gives us the tools to faithfully adapt to future needs. One way that it does this is precisely by preserving points of view that are, in fact, in tension with one another. So among other things, 
the canon presents different viewpoints within the tradition in conversation and sometimes in dispute with one another. I mean, think about this. I'm going to just, uh, this is the one time day I'm going to have time to go off the script, but just kind of give you a hook to hang this on, okay? When we study early American history, right, early U.S. history, we, we tend to, a lot, of, a lot of people tend to think that the founding fathers were all on the same page, right? We, we, we quote them like a monolith, right? But in fact, they were not. Like, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were always arguing with each other, but they're both within the same tradition, right? But there are disagreements and tensions within that tradition. I'm going to argue, and I think what Davis is essentially arguing, is that Scripture also preserves that kind of conversation. That there is one overarching tradition, but there are differences and disagreements within it. And rather than just silencing voices, Scripture will put them side by side where they sort of um, refine each other. So then the question is, how does this impact how we read and understand the troubling stories of the Canaanite conquest? Davis contends that while these stories preserve the party line of their day, right? And you could say the party line is, you know, what, like the only good Canaanite is a dead Canaanite? So while these stories preserve the party line of their day, there's also subtle pushback against that party line within the narrative framework itself. It, um, in other words, the, the tradition is able to offer an internal critique of itself. And these instances of pushback within the narrative framework are what Davis calls critical traditioning. In her essay... Davis produces two examples of critical traditioning that relate to the difficulties raised by the Canaanite conquest narratives. First, she looks at the story of Jacob's sons slaughtering a Canaanite village in Genesis 34. She suggests that Jacob's response to this event provides grounds for a critical assessment of the Canaanite conquest. Second, she takes up the story of Rahab in Joshua 2, which pushes back against the official party line of Canaanite uber-wickedness. To her two examples, I will add a third. God's response to the sin of Achan, recorded in Joshua chapter 7. This story, juxtaposed with Rahab's righteousness shows that God is no respecter of persons, whether Israelite or Canaanite. So, here's where the slasher films come in, because this is, I know, what you all really came from. <laughs> um, I'm always looking for intersections between the Bible and biblical theology and pop culture. Um, last summer at the church where I preach, I did this, this sermon series on Ephesians where I used 80s sitcoms uh, to teach the main themes of, of Ephesians. Like, um, you know, where I talked about adoption into the household of God, I used different strokes. Where I talked about Christian community and the contours of Christian, I used cheers. So I'm always looking for those intersections. And um, 
when I was thinking of examples of critical traditioning in popular culture, I actually came up with uh, these three films from the horror director Wes Craven because these films that we're going to talk about are actually examples of cri uh, critical traditioning from within pop culture. Um, and the, the three films are his 1972 directorial debut, Last House on the Left, uh, his 1977 cult classic, The Hills Have Eyes, and his 1984 breakthrough film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now here's why these films are examples of critical traditioning. I want you, especially if you kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, or if you're a movie buff, you're going to understand this, uh, think about some of the, the films, other films that were massively popular during this period of time. Um, 1971's Dirty Harry, uh, 1973's Walking Tall, 1974's Death Wish, 1982's Rambo First Blood. What are some common features that all of these films share in common? They're, they're all celebrating people who take the law into their own hands, right? Death Wish and First Blood, in particular, valorize vigilante violence. During that time, let's put this in context. Let's put these films in context. During that time, there was a lot of social unrest. Crime rates in a lot of cities were spiking. The culture felt like it was spinning out of control. People didn't feel safe. So there was all this like tension, right? And people were developing this mentality that basically said, well, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And um, that was kind of the um, ethos of the time. People were scared, and many of them fantasized about taking matters into their own hands. In fact, a couple of years late, you know, later, really toward the end of 1984, uh, that's where you had uh, Bernie Goetz, right, the New York subway shooter, who was valorized as the subway vigilante. Everybody thought, man, this guy's awesome, right? He was, he was very popular. Um, and, and so that's kind of what these films celebrated. They were, and that's why they were so popular with the American public. They expressed the kind of official party line of mainstream America at the time, which is, we have to take back our culture by any means necessary. So these three films from Wes Craven worked within that same tradition. Um, they also feature ordinary Americans taking matters into their own hands and engaging and violence and vengeance against, um, you know, the barbarians and the heathens. And um, here's where they're different, though. These films did not valorize vigilante violence in the way that, say, A Death Wish did. Um, in fact, they all offer at least an implicit critique of working outside uh, the law to try and get justice. So while these films are from within the tradition of vigilante vengeance and, and violence kind of fantasies, 
they're also critical of that tradition. So they are examples of critical traditioning. And then I realized something else. Each of these three films tracks with one of the three stories from Scripture where we see critical traditioning applied to the Canaanite conquest narratives. So now we're going to look at the massacre of the Hivites in Genesis 34, side by side with the last house on the left. Then the story of Rahab's conversion in Joshua 2, side by side with the hills have eyes. And finally, Joshua 7 and the judgment on Achan, side by side with the nightmare on Elm Street. So in Genesis 34, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, went out to a Canaanite village with some of the local girls. While there, she was raped by a local rowdy named Shechem, whose father was the village Hefe. Shechem remained smitten with Dinah, and he and his father approached Jacob to arrange a marriage. You guys are familiar with this story, correct? But then Dinah's brothers found out what happened, and they were outraged, as any brothers would be. So they hatched a plan. They told Shechem that he could have their sister on one condition, and that was that he got circumcised. Because we're, we're, we're Hebrews and we do that. And that all the other men of the village also had to get circumcised if they wanted to marry Israelite women. And the amazing thing is, is that Shechem actually complied. But the really amazing thing is that somehow or another, he got all the rest of the dudes in the village to comply. Um, which I guess just shows the coercive power that his family must have had over their village. Now, while the men were laid up from their circumcisions... Dinah's brothers attacked the village, but it was not just enough for them to come in and rescue their sister, right? They slaughtered every man in town. They looted the city, and they took the women. When Jacob learned what his sons had done, he was horrified. Here's what he said. You have brought trouble on me, by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. Both I and my household. Genesis 34, 30. Jacob warns his sons that the Canaanites cannot be slaughtered with impunity. He foresees serious consequences for their behavior. The massacre, in his eyes, of the Canaanite village will only perpetuate cycles of violence. They have gained nothing but enemies. When viewed through the lenses of critical traditioning, Jacob's words present us with a challenge to the party line that justified slaughtering the wicked Canaanites. Jacob's horrified response to his son's massacre of a Canaanite village 
registers a voice of, dis of dissent against the violence of the later Canaanite conquest. Will future generations of the sons of Jacob heed his warning? Now let's talk about Last House on the Left. This film is infamous for its raw and graphic depictions of sexualized violence, cruelty, and slaughter. When it was released in 1972, the promotional trailers came with a warning to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. Like Genesis 34, Last House on the Left tells the story of the family of a young woman who's been raped extracting their brutal revenge through bloody slaughter. Like Dinah in Genesis 34, young Mary Collingwood goes to a strange city with a friend. While there, the girls are enticed by a young man named Junior, whose father Krug is the ringleader of a sadistic criminal gang. Mary and her friend are taken into the woods by the gang where they are tortured and Mary escapes but is grievously wounded. The gang takes off dressed as traveling salespeople. Eventually their car breaks down just as fate would have it right up the road from where Mary's parents live. And they come in and they say, hey, we're traveling salespeople, our car threw a rod, can we spend the night with you? They let her. They let him. But during the night, as events unfold, Mary's mom recognizes that there's a distinctive necklace that she had given Mary for her birthday, and one of them has that necklace. And they realize something is not right. And eventually, on the edge of the property, they find their daughter. She's dying, and she does die in front of them. And so they are now determined to extract their bloody revenge, and they do so with incredibly bloody and brutal attacks, including one, there's another parallel with Genesis 34, uh, because it involves wounded male genitals, I will not go any further on that, um, but in this clip, we will see the last two members of Krug's gang meeting their end. These cops who wander in at the end of the film have been tracking Krug's gang, but they have arrived too late. All they find is the aftermath of the slaughter. The film's final shot focuses on the Collingwoods. They're absolutely shattered people. Behind them, a tapestry for their daughter's birthday has fallen in tatters, just like their lives. They have slaughtered the wicked, but now they no longer know who or even what they are. 
The chorus of the theme song for Last House on the Left says the road leads to nowhere. At least nowhere you want to go. That's what Craven is warning us in this film. This level of violence, even against the wicked, takes us to where we should not want to go. Jacob's protest against the massacre of a Canaanite village in Genesis 34 says much the same thing. In 1977, Craven returned to the horror genre with The Hills Have Eyes. Over time, it became a cult classic. Now, if you know much about uh, this film, um, the parallels between the Canaanite conquest and the Hills Have Eyes are actually rather transparent. Uh, in, in this film, a righteous but deeply flawed family, kind of an all-American family, wages a war for survival against a family of mutant cannibals in the California wilderness. In the eyes of the killer mutants, the all-American family has invaded their space. In the eyes of the all-American family, the mutants are an abomination that needs to be completely annihilated. As the film progresses, the slaughter of the mutants becomes more and more brutal. The all-American family's own humanity is degraded as they wage this war. We see this in the final scene of the film. notice the screen goes red at the end signifying that the all-american family has descended into a state of primitive rage again craven is warning us what we may become when we are as brutal as the wicked we fight against now did you notice that young lady who came to the aid of the all-american dude her name is ruby and she was actually from the tribe of mutant cannibals. She turned on her own family to save her own life. The implication is that somehow she will be adopted by the surviving members of the all-American family. I'm going to argue that Ruby is an incredibly complicated figure and that she displays the most humanity of anyone in this film. As her family is being slaughtered by the intruders, she resigns herself to her people's doom. But she also makes a quick calculation to save her own life. Again, the parallel 
with Rahab and Joshua too is obvious. She protects the Israelite spies who have come to annihilate her city, Jericho, and listen to what she tells them. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. Like Ruby in the hills have eyes, Rahab knows that her people's time is up. And so, like Ruby, she makes a calculated decision to assist the invaders and spare her own life. What is implicit in the hills have eyes is made explicit in the book of Joshua because we know that Rahab is integrated into the people of Israel. And in fact, if you read your New Testament, she is even in the lineage of Jesus. In the hills have eyes, Ruby proves that there is courage and wisdom and even righteousness among even some from the cannibal clan. Notice that she even mourned the death of her wicked brother Mars. Like she knew he had it coming, but she did not relish it. She took no delight in the death of the wicked. The Bible says that about somebody else, doesn't it? Ruby is calculating and opportunistic, but she still has a human heart. Likewise, Rahab challenges the party line of total Canaanite wickedness. She is not a one-dimensional stock character who typifies all that is abominable. Rather, she is wise and courageous. The presence of Rahab in the book of Joshua is a counterpoint to all of the talk of Canaanite wickedness that we hear all throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Perhaps not all Canaanites are so terrible that they deserve to be slaughtered. So again, we see a question mark placed over the party line of the conquest tradition from within the tradition itself. The story of the conquest of Jericho, which began with Rahab and Joshua 2, ends in Joshua 6. But Joshua 7 presents us with a new problem. The Israelites were soundly defeated at the next city they went to conquer, Ai. And the reason for their defeat is spelled out in verse 1. An Israelite named Achan had stolen some of the devoted things as a memento. In his case, it was gold and silver and a Canaanite robe, and so God was furious. In verses 11 through 12, God revealed to Joshua the reason for his anger because someone among the Israelites had stolen what was devoted to God. God says, they have become a thing devoted to for destruction themselves. The Hebrew word translated devoted things is cherem. This word is often translated, I'm going to argue mistranslated, uh, Walton will too if you read his book, but it's usually translated in our Bibles as to totally destroy when speaking of the Canaanites and their fate. 
It can also be translated, as you see in the Common English Bible, put to the ban. It literally means a thing that is devoted to God. The point is, it's a word that in this context refers to the fate of the Canaanites. But now God says the Israelites have become cherem because of the sin among them. When Achan's sin is uncovered, he and his family are put to the ban. They are utterly destroyed by being burned to death and their bodies are buried under stones. Achan's sin caused the deaths of many, including his own family. Well, if you know anything about A Nightmare on Elm Street, you're probably already seeing the parallels. But here's a clip that will make it more explicit. Ronnie Blakely was like the worst actress of 1984. <laughs> I love me some Heather Langenkamp, though. I apologize, I wasn't able to get more quality of a, of a clip. Like Akan, Freddy Krueger represented a threat from within the community. And like Akan, Krueger was burned to death and the community did everything they could to bury his memory. But that's where the similarities between Akan and Freddy Krueger end. And after that, it's the Elm Street parents whose story parallels Akan's. Like Akan they took something that rightly belongs to God, and that is vengeance. Deuteronomy 32:35, revenge is my domain. And like Achan, 
They saved a memento of their victory. Freddy's knife gloves. And like Akon, others died because of their sin, including their own children. As Freddy Krueger haunted the dreams of the Elm Street kids and slaughtered them one by one, the sins of the parents were visited upon the children. When they killed Freddy Krueger, the Elm Street parents became murderers like him. Just like when Akan stole the harem items, he put himself to the ban. And the point of the story of Akan is, as biblical scholar Frank Anthony Spina puts it, if Israelites act as Canaanites, then God will regard them as Canaanite and treat them accordingly. Now here's where the critical traditioning comes into the story. The Israelites had been told repeatedly how wicked and abominable the Canaanites were. But since arriving in Canaan, if you follow the story of Joshua up to this point, they have not met a single wicked Canaanite. There's only the stories of Rahab, a righteous Canaanite, and Achan, a wicked Israelite. And that juxtaposition of the righteous Canaanite and the wicked Israelite is itself a form of critical traditioning. But when it comes to the Old Testament, especially the challenging parts, no one has ever been better at critical traditioning than Jesus was. Which makes sense as the living word of God, Jesus' life, words, ministry, death, resurrection, glorification are all faithful to the Old Testament story. On more than one occasion, Jesus promised that the ramshackle Old Testament narrative finds its fulfillment in him. The unanswered questions find their answers in him. The unsettled disputes are settled in him. The unresolved tensions find their resolution in him. Although Jesus lived and moved and had his being in the Old Testament tradition, he often presented profound challenges to fellow interpreters of that tradition, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus remained faithful to the Old Testament tradition, but he did so by reimagining, recontextualizing, and reinterpreting many elements of it. I mean, we see him doing that with the holiness code, the cleanliness code, right? He doesn't say it doesn't matter, but he does reinterpret it in a way that I'm going to argue is actually more faithful to what the original tradition had in mind. Um, Jesus even applied his own form of critical traditioning to the Canaanite conquest. Now, one place you see that's in Matthew uh, 15 when he meets the Canaanite woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon. You can look at that later if you're not familiar with it. But the passage that I want to look at is one that is incredibly familiar to us, or at least should be, and that's the Great Commission. 
Like, you know, that is, that is like Church of Christ walking orders right there. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Um, the way that it relates to the conquest narratives has often been overlooked. And again, I want to this this insight, I give credit where credit is due, is not original to me. I encountered it uh, a little over a decade ago in an article from Kent Sparks called Gospel is Conquest. It was in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly. But once Kent Sparks had made his case that the Great Commission is Jesus' answer to the Canaanite conquest, I wondered how I had never noticed the parallels before. See, the Great Commission stands directly within the conquest tradition. And yet, it also subverts key elements of it. Basically, it breaks down like this. In Deuteronomy, Moses stood on a mountain, a mountaintop in Moab with the tribes of Israel gathered around him. And then in Matthew 28, 16, Jesus goes to a mountain and gathers his disciples around him. In Deuteronomy 11, 23, Moses tells the Israelites that the nations must be driven out and destroyed. But in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus tells his disciples that the nations are to be discipled and baptized. In Deuteronomy 11, 28, and then a few uh, chapters later in 31, verse 5, Moses tells the Israelites to obey everything that he has commanded them. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus tells his disciples to teach the nations to obey everything he has commanded. Um, here's a major difference, but a hopeful one that Jesus brings to this tradition. In Deuteronomy, the disqualified Moses died, could not go into the promised land with the people, did not enter Canaan. But what does Jesus say at the very end, Matthew 28, 20? I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, Ken Sparks called this fulfillment by antithesis. I'm going to call it Jesus fulfilling the scriptures through critical traditioning. After Moses, Joshua led the people of God into Canaan to conquer it. Now Jesus is our Joshua and leads us on a conquest of the nations. But our conquest is not by destroying and dispossessing people. It comes through lives surrendered to Jesus through our preaching and our witness, through discipling the nations and baptizing them. So I want to conclude with an observation. It has been fun and illuminating, at least for me, I hope for you, to read the Canaanite conquest traditions through the critical lenses of Wes Craven films. It will be even more illuminating to read them and all of the Old Testament through the critical lens of the incarnation, life, ministry, words, death, resurrection, and glorification of Christ. Now we have about 15-ish minutes left. Uh, if anybody wants questions, comments, clarifications. This is conquest.
look at the Great Commission continued in Acts or anywhere else? Um, are you are you referring to Kent Sparks article? Yeah, I mean, does anybody else pick up on that and say, here's where I see that as well in the Christian history of the New Testament? I, you know, I think that for me, the answer to that, I, I don't, I, you know, obviously it seems like there's parallels in how it's framed at the in the Great Commission. But keep in mind, I think that's kind of particular to Matthew. Luke also has this idea of, of the nations, right, being reached by the gospel, but he doesn't frame it, it doesn't seem to me, in a conquest motif. I think that might be particular to Matthew, and it might be particular to, you know, kind of where he wants to go in his gospel, because he's very much about, you know, this typology where, where things are, you know, being fulfilled from Old Testament tradition. Catholic Biblical Quarterly. It's a it's a uh, scholarly journal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Uh, yeah, Jacob. Uh, I showed up a little bit late because I'm lame, but we <laughs> covered this already. But what is Wes Craven's uh, faith background? These parallels are really fascinating. Does uh-huh. he have a like a connection with uh, Jewish tradition or? West West Craven grew up fundamentalist Baptist and actually uh, went to Wheaton College. Um, he obviously repudiated his faith because he was very he he had a very traumatic faith experience. Let's put it to you that way, as as many people do, right? When you were when you were raised in, in any kind of fundamentalism, but I do think I don't think it's I don't know if he consciously like had these or if it's just because he grew up with these stories because like i'm going to tell y'all here's 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 my you want to you want to know my my trauma when i was three years old my children's bible had the story of elisha with the she bears mauling all the kids (laughs) and it was framed as this is why we have to be i'm always like we need to be very especially careful with how we use these texts right and it framed the story as these kids made fun of 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 this prophet for male pattern baldness and so you know, God got mad and had a she-bear eat 42 of them. And that was in my, I'm a three-year-old kid, and that was in my children's Bible. So, you know, I'm sure that he probably had a lot of similar experiences. And so I think it's not, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily conscious on his part, but I don't think it's accidental that these parallels end up all throughout his films. Bobby, I'll get you next. We chatted about this. Yes. I think you did a great job with the film. That was awesome. Uh, my, my question, I suppose, would be, I'm not convinced on the mosaic typology in the Great Commission there. There's all kinds of mosaic typology between Jesus and them. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, it makes it clear that Israelites are not possessing land because of their righteousness. Mm-hmm. So that, that doesn't begin with Joshua. That doesn't begin with critical tradition and Moses says it point blank that it's not because of your righteousness, it's not because of your integrity it's not because of anything that you say or do. My, my problem with this is I am trying to find within the biblical canon outright criticism of the conquest narrative which I am un, I don't know of any. Paul accepts it 
Luke accepts it, the Hebrew preacher accepts it. They all say, <clears throat> I mean, Paul mentions in Acts chapter 13, Luke through Stephen does in Acts chapter 7. In the Hall of Fame of Faith, it's mentioned there. So I'm just struggling here because Jesus, we call Jesus, Jesus in English, but his name is Joshua. Yeah, I mean, and so, I think I made that connection at the end, yeah. So I, I think Scripture sees it as a one-time, this this way I think the Old Testament sees it, or the Hebrew Bible, that Joshua is a one-time, foundational, non-repeatable event. And nowhere in Scripture, now Christians have misappropriated Joshua. You don't find in the history of Post the post life of Joshua, you don't find Jews using the book of Joshua as justification for slaughtering anybody. They recognize that it is a one-time, unique, non-repeatable event that had nothing to do with Israel's righteousness whatsoever. And I think I have to struggle with that. That's what I'm struggling with. I believe that it does not justify any violence by us, by us today. But the scripture itself places a question mark by it. I don't see that. Include, and I love Ellen Davis. I just don't see that. And I don't see any other scholars referring to Sparks' article on the typology of the Magic Point Gate. I, I, don't, I don't buy that. As far as the Sparks article on Matthew 28, I mean, I, I don't know. I see a typology there. You don't. I mean, uh, you know, I don't I don't know what else to, I mean, we can disagree on that. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, I mean, you know, we can disagree on a lot of stuff. It's fine. That's not what mm-hmm. our fellowship is based on. I will say I do understand your concern about not, not, not seeing an actual outright repudiation. I think Davis's argument is that the, the, the critiques are implicit and kind of written into the narrative framework. Obviously, then you have to assume, which I kind of do, a little bit more of a complex compositional history. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I get what you're saying, too, about New Testament usage. I don't think that Paul is as explicit. I do think you see it in the, the Hebrew uh, preacher and, and whatnot, but I also think the New Testament uses the example of calling Lot righteous when he hands his virgin daughters off to be raped by the men of Sodom. I don't consider that righteous. Are we allowed to perhaps disagree with some of the cultural um, ways of seeing certain things that were par for the course back then? I think that's what the real question is. The other, the other issue, so I agree with your point, but I'm also still keeping that question mark going. The other thing is I try to be really careful not to frame this as the Israelites are righteous. I did talk about Canaanite wickedness because Scripture does talk about Canaanite wickedness. I didn't frame it in terms of, of Israelite righteousness. Um, and, and, and I think that's one of the, that's one of the issues that comes up. It's, it, you know, even when you say, well, it's because they're so wicked. You know, and, there, and like I said, there are questions of is the language of killing every last man, woman, and child hyperbolic? This, that, and the other, but we still have to we still have to wrestle with that being part of our of our canon, and it does present challenges after a century where twenty million people died in ethnic cleansings. So I and I, and I yeah I get what you're saying. So I'm not I'm not pushing back too hard. Only that's why I'm where I'm at. Hold on, I I have got two in front of you, Caleb. But then and Caleb, I think we'll have to cut off after you. Get, you know. 
first of all, really enjoyed this presentation. Um, Thank you. I would say this, this is an extremely important issue, the issue of the Great Commission. I feel like we need to have an answer for the claims of God-inspired and God-ordained violence in the Old Testament. And we talk about terms of wrestling with and subtle pushback and all that sort of thing, but it's almost like it feels like we need to have an answer for this big, big issue. When we're going out trying to live out the Great Commission, some of the first responses people probably get is, well, you're asking me to worship the same God that is discussed as ordaining this violence in the Old Testament. And we need to have a good answer for that. And the answer, of course, is Jesus and his attitude towards nonviolence. But I don't know. It just seems like this is something that we really need to not have a uniform answer on, but at least have a good response to rather than, well, we're still wrestling with this. Which is why I provided the resources that I did, because I think that they all help you know, like I said at the beginning, this, you know, what I, what I had, this is one, this is one possible avenue for interpreting that. These, the, the resources I've provided all kind of give you framework for another one. Okay, I saw a hand, okay, yes. Mine will jump off of his question, and that is from an apologetic standpoint, which is the world that I live in. If you were to have to succinctly answer the question posed, let's say by a skeptic, uh, with regards to this conquest theology or this conquest uh, issue that, that frequently is uh, approached critically by skeptics, but you don't have maybe scripture as your basis to reference. That is, uh, we all believe that Christ is the answer, as, as was presented in the last question. What would your answer be to that skeptic? Let's say you have three minutes. How do we approach, or what is our answer to that question, well, your God says this. You know, your God showed that he will slaughter innocent people. What is your quick answer to that? Because that, to me, that is a powerful uh, and impactful and important thing that we should be able to, at least in my world, again, from an apologetic standpoint, how do I get them to at least go, oh, okay, that might be reasonable, let me look further, as opposed to, well, forget that. That is a good question, and 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 I and I will admit I'm still wrestling with it, and that's I, I have unanswered questions. I think that's for what I came here this morning. For. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, I have failed miserably. Um, but no, seriously, I think right now I would I would probably respond even a bit differently than I than I than I would via this presentation. Sure. Um, my my argument would probably be along the lines of um, culturally speaking, this is just how people talked about war back then. Like, it doesn't mean that they necessarily, there is hyperbolic language there. I mean, we say now, like, if one team, you know, like that story we heard, uh, you know, Rick actually tell last night, you know, that one team totally annihilated the other. Well, they didn't really. Those people didn't go home in body bags, right? Um, th there's an element of that. We, we know that in ancient Near Eastern culture. That's just how they talked about warfare. Um, secondly, that what God is doing is he's trying to carve out holy space. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, this is not about the people enriching themselves. This is ultimately about, um, um, get, you know, carving out this holy space, giving it back to God, and God leasing it back to them so that they can thrive and be the kind of people he wants them to be. 
The problem with that, and even though I feel that, is that if you're talking to a modern person, that's still saying, well, you went and kicked out people who were living there just so you could have their stuff. And there's not, I'm sorry, there's not an easy way, and that's why I'm still wrestling. I'm sorry, that, that is, because I don't have, and even, even granting what Bobby says, I don't have, like, I'm not satisfied yet, so I'm going to continue to remain wrestling. Uh, Caleb. Um, so this is about to ask Bobby, I'm going to try to make this a question. Um, in the presentation, you talk about these films explicitly talking about vigilante justice, mm -hmm. yet the biblical narratives are more in the status of war. And we could quabble about how official war should be or not, right? As far as a form of violence. Right. But there is a major difference there. Um, when we see the New Testament and how Jesus is not establishing a new nation state, mm -hmm. do you think there's any implicit criticism of the conquest and the idea that God says, you know what? We're not going to do this country thing anymore. We're going to be citizens of heaven. We're going to have a church that crosses national borders. And we're not going to set up a government, we're not going to own a land. Right. Is, do you think there's implicit criticism in the New Testament of the conquest because God takes a very different tactic? I think, and this is where I think Bobby and I would probably disagree, because I do see it as an implicit critique, but it's difficult because, and, and I see it as a reinterpretation. How about that? Um, and maybe that's a softer way of putting it. But, I, I mean, there is an obvious difference because this is not about a settled people with a particular land um, this is about God's people, it, according to the story, inheriting all of the nations eventually. How that happens, I don't know. But, um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, maybe not an implicit critique. That might be strong language. I use that kind of language here. But, but at least a reinterpretation. And, um, because I do think that once you, once you set it in, in the, and that's why I, I think I see the mosaic typology by, you know, antithesis so clearly in Matthew 28 because I do see that ultimately as a reinterpretation of the tradition um, you know once again Jesus on a mountain with the disciples gathered around him he's saying this I don't see to me this is once again just to me I don't see how you miss the Deuteronomy typology there so well I think particularly just a quick comment if we see the five speeches of Jesus to try to represent the five books of Moses right then this comes at the end of Matthew's Deuteronomy. Yes. And I think that's another strength of Matthew. Yeah, which is something, I mean, we've been kind of talking about for, you know, 120 years since Benjamin Bacon, you know. So, all right, guys, thank you. <laughs>